Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Welcome, everybody, to this Littler Podcast. My name is Kevin O'Neill. I'm the Senior Director of the Littler Learning Group. Today, we'll be discussing emerging accessibility issues under Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act. We'll be joined by Peter Pettish, a shareholder with Littler Mendelssohn's Washington, D.C. office, whose specialty areas include focus under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and Gavin Appleby, a shareholder with Littler's Atlanta office, who advises and represents employers in a broad range of employment law matters, including focus under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So welcome, Peter. Welcome, Gavin. Thank you. Thanks. Let's start by developing a baseline understanding of what we're talking about when we discuss accessibility issues under Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So could you start by giving us some background regarding the foundation of these requirements? Sure. Uh, Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act covers places of public accommodation and making, uh, ensuring equal access and enjoyment at places of public accommodation for people with disabilities. So what are places of public accommodation? That includes restaurants, uh, retail establishments, healthcare facilities, hospitality slash hotels, entertainment venues, and and the like. So Title III to the ADA, or the Americans with Disabilities Act, came out in 1991, and I understand that revised regulations became effective in 2012, which was about four years ago. Have claims calmed down, or have they picked up since those revised regulations? Well, oddly, even though there hasn't been a major legislative change that really affects Title III, remember there was the uh, amendments to the Americans with Disabilities Act that affects the definition of uh, who has a disability, It, it really didn't affect Title III coverage um, because it, it was always fairly clear um, that people using wheelchairs and such, people with vision impairments, uh, people who are deaf and hard of hearing have disabilities, and that's always been the case, uh, regardless of the amendments. But claims have spiked over the last couple of years. Uh, There was a Wall Street Journal article reporting a 55% increase in just one year in claims, and uh, my friends at the Justice Department informed me that the number of accessibility complaints that they get uh, rose 40% just last year. That's significant. What do you attribute that to? I attribute it to greater awareness of people's rights um, and and a couple of developing areas, one of which uh, Gavin has taken a, a strong interest in, and that is website accessibility. The other sort of onrush of claims has come through service animal issues, which is an area where Peter's got a lot of experience. But we, we definitely have now more and new claims re- regarding service animals, and I think that's been part of the pickup. Yeah, another area has been healthcare. Um, there have been there's been a lot of attention on equal access and, uh, if you can use the word, enjoyment of healthcare. Uh, from uh, optical facilities, dental facilities, um, day clinics, what have you. So what are the array of issues that they're presenting themselves there with the healthcare facilities and some of the accessibility stuff? Well, part of it is effective communication, um, use of uh, 
video remote interpreting and live interpreters for deaf and hard of hearing patients and their companions. Um, but it's also been patient lift issues, uh, equal access to such things as x-ray machines, examination chairs, and the like. Are you seeing uh, some general misstep areas in that area where some clients are unwittingly not quite up to speed with some of the accessibility requirements? There's been a lot of attention by the Justice Department uh, and others on effective communication, especially uh, for deaf and hard of hearing patients. And it, it, it's not so much a matter of healthcare providers knowing that they may need interpreters, but it's a question of how quickly they have to get an interpreter in. There's not a bright line test, but, uh, but, but some might not have the mechanisms in place to respond as quickly as they perhaps should in getting interpreters in for patients and companions. And is that in part a technology issue? Is that a financial constraint that they're coming up against? A little bit of both or other things? I think it's all of the above. But if anything, the technology is improving with video remote interpreting. And in a lot of settings, certainly not all settings, but video remote interpreting might very well be a perfectly effective accommodation. It might not be in a hospital emergency room, um, but it might be in uh, for having an optical exam. Well, let me jump in a little on that issue, Peter, and that is to talk some more about our clients and the difficulty they have. It might be relatively easy in a large hospital to have interpreters available or an interpreter available, but when you get down to the point where you're going into your local quote-unquote dock-in-the-box, that's not mm-hmm. going to and from a technology standpoint, I think that's the only real hope for this. Otherwise, it just isn't a practical solution. And the technology side, I think, really is helping, frankly, with, with accommodations and with the ability of people to do things that they couldn't do before. So that's all, a, a, that's, I think, a course in progress, but we're definitely seeing improvement. So let's extend that theme of those who are having some successes. And under Title III in accessibility, uh, who... Who is getting compliance right, uh, and if so, why? What steps are they taking in general? I've always said that everybody is getting it wrong to some degree or another. Um, I I have made the pledge that I would, uh, if I found a place of public accommodation in absolute full compliance with every part of Title III of the ADA, I would uh, sing La Vie en Rose in a pink tutu while playing the ukulele. And I don't play a string instrument, I don't speak French, and I don't have a pink tutu. And I'm not worried, because this is one area where everybody is um, out of step to some degree or another. But, but I will say that a lot of the healthcare providers are... Uh, in compliance with a lot of the physical accessibility features. And I think they were ahead of the game simply because they always needed to accommodate patients. I understand that Littler's uh, putting out on the market a, uh, an accessibility toolkit, which will include a tutu and, uh, and French speaking uh, lessons. Uh, Is that true? Indeed. I thought so. So we'll, we'll follow up on that. That'll be the next podcast. 
Let me add to that a little too, Kevin, in the sense that when you walk into, when you walk in or I walk into our average restaurant, we're not looking for the things that pop up in the disability analysis under the ADA. But if someone walks in looking for those things, which happens, by the way, I just mm-hmm. resolved the case of a guy who came in in a wheelchair and he was not necessarily there to eat food. And within probably 15 minutes, uh, they had five or six violations that they had found, all of which were accurate. And so we don't look at that. We don't see it, but other people do. And they're trying to enforce the law. And I get it. And I think, like Peter, it's frankly very difficult for the average restaurant company or owners to be in full compliance. It's so technical and, and so specific in the regulations but at this point, you wonder, after all these years of having the ADA, shouldn't we be closer than we are? And the answer is yes. So it sounds like some industries, you mentioned the restaurant industry, might be uh, particularly vulnerable to this concept of someone coming in and almost a testing function. Is that true? If so, what are some of the industries that are particularly vulnerable there? Well, that's always been the case uh, with restaurants and the so-called drive-by lawsuits where people have uh, come in and said, I can't get through the door. Well, of course, that's vitally important for someone in a wheelchair to be able to get into the place in in the first place. Um, But some of the suits have become far more sophisticated than the the standard drive-by lawsuit, and, and there have even been attempts at class actions over uh, chain restaurants, and there was a magistrate's decision in one case um, in the Midwest, and that is now uh, still being litigated, but uh, to my knowledge, it's one of the first cases of its kind to come as close as it has to real class certification in a private lawsuit. That's interesting. Are you finding, in general, that the class action or collective action model lends itself to this and is showing up more in the accessibility arena? I know it has in the healthcare area uh, very strongly. And then there are the collective actions or so-called class-based actions that the Department of Justice pursues. It's a little bit more of a challenge in this particular area. Uh, There are limited damages under this part of the ADA. And so in some cases, the class action analysis doesn't make sense, but the government can effectively co-op a case with a private organization and enable damages to occur. And we are definitely seeing a fair amount of that. So when you're advising employers and they're coming to you with with questions or concerns, what are some of the major areas of questions that you're getting and uh, and what, what are you covering in your initial response? Well, a lot of it is service animals, for one thing, but the, the, then there are the questions that were not being asked, and, and I think Gavin can speak to the website issue on that one. Yeah, I'm not sure which is the bigger, hotter topic these days, service animals or website issues. Um, and uh, let's, Peter, let's start with service animals. That's sure. That's interesting. Um, we've seen everything now from, obviously, the service dogs, to we have seen service monkeys. There are now such a thing as a service parrot. Uh, the, there aren't many service cats, although I have seen one recently situation of a cat involved. But we've even heard of a service snake, which I'm frankly not buying. 
But long story short, it's really become a zoo, uh, so to speak. And uh, Peter, I know you deal with that on a regular basis. What 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 do you get clients other than do we have to let that damn dog in here? Sure. Under under Title Three, the regulations are pretty defined, and a service animal is somewhat circumscribed to animals that perform functions beyond mere comfort and protection. Um, and a service animal in the new regs is defined as a dog or a miniature horse. But if you get into the service animal area, like Gavin was referring to, for employees um, who may want a service animal as an accommodation at work under a different title, Title I of the ADA, um, you don't have that uh, brighter line test. You uh, you have a very nebulous test, and it could be comfort animals, and it could be a comfort monkey, comfort pig, or a comfort snake. And the standards for comfort animals are a, a lot more, uh, shall we say, vague or expansive than they are with service animals? With, uh, with Title I of the ADA for employees, yes. Um, with service animals, it, well, service animals provide a variety of functions in places of public accommodation for people using the public accommodation. And it's not just the, uh, the traditional guide dog, but it could be a dog that alerts an individual with epilepsy on an oncoming seizure. And that's a legitimate service animal under the regulations. I think that from where we are, the problem really that's gotten under the skin of employers is they feel like a true service dog is perfectly fine, but they now have employees that they believe are taking advantage of this situation, and you in fact can buy a little uh, jacket for your dog on the internet that makes it look like it's a service dog. You also, as, as Peter said, a lot of the dogs aren't service dogs. They are companion dogs or emotional dogs. Um, and long story short, employers are struggling with where the line is. And the line is very clear under the access issues under Title III. But the line, to Peter's point, is not very clear in regard to employment. And that's what's getting into all these other pieces that employers are getting so frustrated at. I think even the government realizes there's cheaters and realizes it's getting a little frustrating. But I don't see them changing their analysis just because there are some people taking advantage of this. So in terms of uh, strategies for employers when somebody comes in with a potential non-traditional comfort animal, uh, what are some quick tips that you would offer to them in terms of handling and navigating those initial moments? Well, some of the tips would be to, in any accommodation instance in the workplace, the employer has a right at that point to get medical documentation on the individual's need, on the individual's functional limitations, and brainstorm a whole variety of possible effective accommodations. And it could be that while the animal might be on the list of effective accommodations, there could be alternatives too. And in the end, as long as it's effective, the employer can pick. I, I totally agree and would just tell what I say to clients is you have an interactive process requirement, use it. Because in this instance, the interactive process, what some employers see as a negative because they have to go engage, 
in this instance, you can use that process to get more information. And I would highly recommend that employers take advantage of the interactive process to ask some appropriate questions and get more information. There's also the idea of trial and error. Just because you try an accommodation for a period of time doesn't mean that you are uh, mired in cement with that. It, it's a moving, very dynamic process, and uh, you can give certain accommodations a try on a, on a temporary basis to see if they're going to work and if it's going to work uh, in both the employer's interests as well as the employee's interests. Interesting. Let's switch gears a little bit, Gavin. You've mentioned a couple of times the increase in attention to websites around the accessibility issues. Um, so talk a little bit about the background of that's ha is that happening, and uh, is it happening because of any new standards or regulations? If we just had regulations, we might actually understand all this better, but we don't. The only place where we have regulations right now is in the airline industry, which went to this a couple years ago. For others, though, there are the Department of Justice, which regulates things in tremendous detail under Title III, has not put out regulations for website accessibility and apparently now says it won't until 2018. Uh, to make a long story short, it really is a, a really complicated but very interesting topic. For people with vision impairments, the Internet's obviously become the, the, the thing that we all hang with the most these days. And those those people are definitely at a disadvantage when it comes to using the Internet. And so ultimately, there is a push, a strong push going on relative to this issue. I'll give you some technology on it in just a minute, but to describe the legal piece first, the problem we've got is at the time when the ADA was passed, websites really didn't even exist. And so there's been a question about whether websites are really actually covered by the law, whether they're not. The courts are a little bit of all over the place on that. Uh, several courts, including the Ninth Circuit, have said, for example, if you don't have bricks and mortar somewhere, so if you don't have bricks and mortar in your website, then you may well not have coverage title with your website. The courts disagree. It seems like where the courts are going, if I could recognize a trend, I think it's a trend. And that is that if you have bricks and mortar and a website, you are covered by Title III. If you don't have bricks and mortar, you have a much better argument. Uh, so that's the first piece. The second piece is whether if you are required to have accessibility of a website, what's the law, what's required of you there? And here's where the issue gets complicated. There is a thing out there called the WCAG 2.0 guidance. It's not a law at least in the U.S. What it is is more like akin to an ISO type of standard. It's put together by a group of both private and public entities and specialists. It's a very complicated document in regard to what is required. Uh, WCAG is, remember, it's not the law, but it's an analysis of all the things you can do to a website to make it more user-friendly to someone with vision and it's complicated to the point where if you're trying to fix a website to make it compliant with that standard, it's going to cost, as I understand it, somewhere between $100,000 and $300,000. So there's a real debate. Uh, is it the law? Do we have to do this as part of the law? And the Department of Justice's answer to that is yes, you must. 
even though there's no regulation, and even though there's very little out there in courthouse analysis or judicial decision making issues, and it's created a fiasco. Uh, there are a number of plaintiffs' firms now who are filing or sending threat letters to literally hundreds and hundreds of potential targets out there, mostly in retail, but recently restaurants, insurance companies, and others, including some colleges now. And so that's become the big issue, and it's a fight that's going to take a lot of work out. There's very little out there on the law, and we are now trying to create some law, but that's not a fast process. Uh, these law firms are all offering settlements. It's a little like the old drive-bys that Peter talked about. Uh, the only difference being you could build a ramp in a day. You can't fix it a website in months. It sometimes takes longer than you. If anything, it's a high-tech drive-by. Yeah, or we call it a click-by, actually. Yeah, a click-by because these are all publicly accessible and very easy access. There are, with both websites and with brick-and-mortar, establishments, things that businesses, places of public accommodation can do. And that is audit their compliance. Um, with the websites, uh, there are consultants who will do website accessibility audits and provide advice on how to make the website more accessible, um, usually defaulting to the WCAG guidelines because everyone is assuming that those will one day become the regulatory standard, um, although it's not completely certain and there may be nuances. And then similarly with brick and mortar workplaces to have accessibility consultants, design consultants, evaluate the degree to which a place is or isn't compliant. And if it's not compliant, come up with a plan and a timetable to put it in compliance. And I think you need both technological help and legal help and I would seek both. Um, you can go to our website under publications and pick up our analysis on this, but you need to look at your options and determine where to go. It's a tough area, and I don't think it should be ignored. All right, well, thank you very much, Peter and Gavin. That'll wrap it up for today. Folks, if you have any further questions or need for information, please feel free to visit us on littler.com. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.